Welcome to church. Um, I'm Pastor Pete. If you're visiting us or you're here for the first time, special warm welcome to you. And usually I would be standing up and usually I would be able-bodied, but please excuse me, I'm going to sit down today. Uh, Okay, I'm just going to try not to fall over. This could be really interesting. Okay, there's a really important principle in life and I'm going to give it to you free of charge. It's this, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can wear that doesn't mean you should. Just because you can wear your cat as a backpack does not mean you should walk around the streets like that. And just because you can do that to a dog does not mean that you should because the RSPCA should be on that case. And just because you're good at graphic design and can do stuff with Photoshop doesn't mean you should. Yes, I'm sorry, that image is going to be haunting you for the rest of your week as it has mine. And last but not least, and this is for you, Stephen Coe, just because you can <laughs> distill durian into a perfume does not mean you should. Correct? Correct. All right, there's some um, lighthearted, funny examples, but the principle is important. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, the messy church of ancient Corinth in well, modern day Greece, but in ancient Roman world, Corinth, that we've been looking at through the book of 1 Corinthians, this messy church had that problem in spades, right? Just because they could, they often went and did it. Because they often, and they kept saying, well, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have freedom. We've got the freedom to do this. We've got the freedom to do that. We've got the freedom to eat this. We've got the freedom to drink that. And because we can, we should now you see that in, um, in chapter 6, verse 12. Keep your Bibles open, by the way. We're going to stick in chapter 8, but it's helpful to have them open. In chapter 6, verse 12, Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, he quotes them, and they say, I have a right to do anything. Now, that's a, something that they often said a lot. I've got a right to do this. I've got the freedom to do this. Right? And in chapter 8 that we've just read, I have a right to eat what I want, where I want, when I want. But Paul keeps coming back to the principle, just because you can doesn't mean you should. You have a right to eat, but it doesn't necessarily mean you should. Now their issue here um, raised in chapter 8 is so important that it actually takes up three chapters. It actually goes from chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And it all has to do with the issue of food sacrificed to idols. We'll, look, we'll see what that means in a moment. Now, that's generally not going to be our issue. For some of us, it's related, especially if you've had um, uh, friends or relatives um, with different belief systems. Right? I remember my grandfather when he was still alive. We went to his house when I was a kid, and the food that we were about to eat um, as a family was first offered up to the idol in his house. 
But that's generally not going to be most of our issue. But, I want to say, we can still be a lot like the Corinthian church. Because there are a whole host of things that God actually gives us no rules on, no specific instructions, no prohibitions. So you can do it. But should you do it? Some of the examples that maybe come to mind. Watching R-rated movies. Smoking. Getting tattoos or body piercings. Buying lottery tickets or having a bet on the Melbourne Cup or doing yoga or qigong or going on drinks with your mates. I mean, what do we do about these decisions? The Bible doesn't say yes, no, you can, you can't. What principles do we need? And it's these chapters that give us that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it and uh, ask that God would speak to us. Let's pray. Father God, please help us as we look at these ancient examples, to still see how you will speak to us, challenge us to be applying the principle of love and glorifying you in all that we do, no matter what it costs us. In Jesus' name, amen. Follow with me on your outlines you got when you came in. So firstly, a bit of a recap. You remember last week we came back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we started with. And chapter 7, as I said, is the beginning of Paul dealing with issues that they've raised, okay? So chapter 7, they've raised issues about marriage and singleness. We looked at that last week. Chapter 8, they will raise issues. they've raised issues on food sacrifice to idols. Now, food in, the, uh, in, in, in Corinth, and especially meat. Now, who loves meat here? Hands up, don't be shy. Admit it. Oh, only you guys? Seriously, I love meat. There should be more of you. Meat is wonderful. But here's the thing. In Corinth, if you wanted to have meat... It was almost always tied to idol worshipping in some ways, okay? Food and idol worshipping was very tied together. Remember, these are first-generation Christians. They were a vast minority. This had been a Greek and then a Roman, multiple gods, temple-filled, pagan-worshipping city long before Jesus came along. Now, I want to let you know there are three ways, three ways in which food and idolatry would have been tied. They're different ways, but they're all related. The first way is... Celebration and feasts were often held in temples. Okay, so say you had a big, massive, citywide celebration. Not everyone would have been invited, only the, the special people, the mayor, well, the equivalent of the mayor, um, the upper class would be invited, special people. But these celebration feasts would almost always be at the pagan temple, the idol temple. And therefore, it's tied to idolatry. Often there'd be festivities afterwards at the temple that is directly idol-worshipping. So if you're invited out, you've got one of these VIP tickets to a feast at a temple, all right? Very special. It's going to be tied to idol-worshipping. That's the first one. Secondly, you might be invited to a private dinner at a non-Christian's house. They invite you to to dinner at their place, You go along, and likely, because they aren't idol worshippers, they would have offered their food to their idols before serving it to you. Sort of a little bit like when I had dinner at my um, late grandfather's place when I was a kid. Okay, It would have been first offered to the idol. But it was at their home, wasn't at the temple, but it was at their home. Thirdly, any time you wanted to eat meat and buy meat, you couldn't just go down to the butchers, all right? The butchers were usually tied to temples. So any meat that was sold in the meat market will have been previously offered to idols. So you want to just cook meat in your own home, right? It's not a private dinner at someone else's house. In your Christian household, if you want to cook and eat meat, it's likely to have already been offered to an idol. 
Now, all three, right, the celebration, the private dinners, and meat, Paul will talk about when he comes to the end of this section in chapter 10. He'll deal with it. And we'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. But the question is, okay, given this is the case, what do you do about that? Like, food, celebration, even private dinners, even the meat I want to eat is tied to idol worshipping. What do I do as a Christian, especially for them as a first-generation Christian? Well, different Christians in the Corinthian church responded differently. And I'll show you there are three groups of people. The first were the uninhibited. That is, they didn't feel like they need to be inhibited, restricted in any way. They're Christians now, right? We have freedom. Idols are nothing. What, you know, doesn't affect us. We now worship Jesus. So they went ahead and did everything, whether it's the feast at the temple, whether it's a private dinner, whether it's buying meat, uninhibited. They just did everything. The second group were the uncompromising. That is, they really felt strongly that they shouldn't compromise on any of these things. They, yes, okay, that's my idol worshiping past, but because of it's tied to idolatry, I will just not. I won't eat meat. I won't accept private dinner invitations. I certainly won't go to the temple. They just uncompromisingly said no to everything. Third group, the uncertain. That's the important group for us here. Some people were just confused. Okay, they had all this baggage from their idol worshipping past that even though in their head they understood the freedoms as Christians and they would often go ahead and do it just because other people were doing it, but it just made them feel guilty and troubled. Right? That's the third group, the uncertain. Now, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is concerned about group 1 and group 3. Okay? The uninhibited and the uncertain, particularly about how the uninhibited was impacting the uncertain. See, he's targeting group 1 because of what they were doing to group 3. And he would, he'll, he'll call group 3, um, in inverted commas, weak. Right, verse 7, verse 9, weak. But it's in reference to their conscience. Right? They have weak consciences that were troubled by what they were doing. As opposed to group 1, who had strong consciences, uninhibited consciences. Now, before we go on, it's probably helpful for me to talk a little bit about what is conscience. Because it's, you know, it's an important concept here. So what's the conscience? The conscience is, in the Bible, and also you probably know, an internal compass. Right? Internally of right and wrong. And God gives it to every single person. Every single human being has a conscience, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not. But here's the thing about conscience. It's not absolute. right? It's not an absolute objective guide because consciences are shaped by your upbringing, are shaped by your culture, shaped by even your habits, and they can change. All right? So someone um, from a different society will have a different set of things that trigger off consciences. Versus us. I mean, some things will be in common, we hope, but it can be affected by culture, by habits, by upbringing. The Bible says you can dull your conscience like a knife that gets dulled, so it's not sharp anymore. It doesn't really have those warning signs. You can even sear it, right? Like you, like you sear a piece of meat. So we're still talking about meat. Like maybe like you sear off a wound, okay? So it's not sensitive anymore. It's just like dead skin. You can sear your conscience. A conscience can also, on the other end, be oversensitive. All right, so for example, um, often when kids feel like it's their fault when their parents are fighting and possibly separating, it's not actually their fault, is it? But oversensitive consciences can happen. Um, yes, consciences can be undersensitive. 
uh, right to the extreme where we call them sociopaths and psychopaths. They just have no concept of right and wrong. Right? No feel anything when they do horrible things. So in that way, the conscience is a little bit like tonsils. It's a really raw thing for us to talk about because my poor wife Karen has just fought off another um, bout of tonsillitis and may have, may have to have her tonsils removed. But anyway, um, tonsils are your first line of defense, yeah? Okay? So often tonsils will flare up because, you know, there's some bacteria coming into the body. It's your first line of defense, sort of like your conscience. But tonsils are not absolute. Tonsils can be oversensitive. Someone with a recurring tonsillitis will keep getting tonsillitis over the smallest thing. Tonsils can also be undersensitive, especially when you cut them out. Right? They just don't exist anymore. All right? So tonsils are helpful, but they're not absolute. So the conscience is not absolute. And so the Bible says your conscience actually is one of those parts of your human person that needs to be cleansed, needs to be renewed when you come into relationship with Jesus. And it needs to be educated. Remember, your culture will affect your conscience. Your upbringing will affect your conscience. So actually what you need, and Christians believe that God's word is our only absolute, so the conscience needs to be educated and brought in line with God's word. So on food sacrifice to idols... The group three people, the uncertain, they have weak consciences. In a sense, you're saying their consciences are actually oversensitive at that point. They're oversensitive. They need to be renewed. In fact, they need to be re-educated. But their idol-worshipping baggage is so strong that it's not an easy or a quick thing to happen. Okay? But here's the thing. While your consciences are not absolute, the Bible still teaches it's an important part of our nature. Especially once you become a follower of Jesus. You've been redeemed. You've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible always says, don't ignore your conscience, even if it is oversensitive, even if it does need to be re-educated. Don't purposely act against it. To do so is actually sinful. Right? It's, it's that strong. Acting against your conscience knowingly, even if your conscience is not completely on track, to act against it is to sin. In Romans 14, that's what Paul says, anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And he says it here too in the different ways. So what is happening here in Corinth? It's not just that those with different convictions to group one are seeing what group one is doing and just feeling offended. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. We would never do that. Okay, This is not a group two versus group one issue. Important. Not just group two who are obviously uncompromising, who obviously would not agree with what group one is doing, but group two would never do what group one's doing because they're uncompromising. This is not that issue. This is a group three, right? The uncertain group seeing what group one are doing and then following group one to do the same thing, but in so doing, acting against their own conscience. This is the issue. Not just people getting offended, it's actually people being led to act against your conscience. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? You see, they're actually going to do what they're uncertain about. And Paul treats that really seriously. But group one's attitude, because they are the uninhibited, their attitude is sort of like, hey, just get over it, guys. Right? You have a right to do it. Suck it up, princess. Just get over it. All Christians should be able to do this. 
So what's your problem? That's group one's attitude. They're saying that while group three are suffering, and that is the problem. So you see verse seven, verse seven. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. And then verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died, strong words here, is destroyed by your knowledge. You see, the issue is not whether you eat or not. This is not the primary issue. Paul is going to come back to it in chapter 10 and give his conclusions, but the principle is much more important in chapter 8. This is a massive failure of love. That's what it is. It's a massive failure of love. And so verse 12, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. This is a me sinning against you, horizontal issue. But it's so serious that it's actually sinning against Christ, what group one was doing. Okay, so that's point number one. That's the issue in Corinth. Let's go to point number two. Dig a little bit behind the issue and think, why is this now a problem? Why is this now a problem? Well, it's a problem because, firstly, the gospel Funnily enough, the gospel is going to be both the problem and the solution, all right? The gospel actually created the problem because the gospel changed everything, the good news of Jesus. See, for idol-worshipping pagans in Corinth, look at verse 4. This is what the gospel has done. Verse 4, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. The gospel has made this reality real. There's actually only just one God. There's no false gods anyway. When uh, Karen and I moved into our place in Nawi, um, I remember people were surprised because we bought a house that was number 44. Which, if you're a Chinese, it's actually not a great number at all because four sounds like death. So 44 is like death, death. So Chinese people generally avoid a house number 44 or a lot of lifts will not even have a fourth floor in Asia. But because we're followers of Jesus, we're like, whatever, right? And so... Do you see, the gospel liberates you from that kind of superstition. It's great. It's wonderful. The other thing the gospel does is it takes you away from a religion based on works, based on laws, based on you've got to have all these boundaries. There's actually heaps of freedom. Okay, there are boundaries, yes. But within the boundaries, there's heaps of freedom as a Christian. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more wonderful you realize how relationship with Jesus is actually really freeing. Um, a lot of newer Christians that just become followers of Jesus often want to know, what, what rules do I not know about? What, what more do I need to do? And it takes them a little while as you grow in relationship with Jesus that actually it's very liberating. It's very dynamic. God doesn't tell you every morning, okay, these are the things you must do, checklist. These are the things you must not do, checklist. It, it doesn't work like that. See, that's the gospel. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's freeing, it's liberating, but it creates problems, doesn't it? Because once you know that, what do you do with that kind of knowledge? Because that's precisely the problem here, isn't it? Right, verse 1, verse 4. We know, Paul keeps quoting them. They keep saying, we know. 
idol is nothing. We know that food sacrifice idols don't mean anything. Well, that knowledge is true, but what do you do with that knowledge? Because knowledge without love becomes a big problem. You see that? Verse 1, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And that's the issue. It's not the knowledge, it's knowledge without love. Now, this is a good reminder, just to take a step back. There are those here who, you know, you're Bible nerds. Okay, it's all right, I'm one of you guys. I went to Bible college. Um, when you, you have good biblical, good theological knowledge, I think we need to be especially careful here. Because right? it's easy to bank on your knowledge. But knowledge can often just lead to pride and not be acting out of love, especially on issues where you've come to see differently and even, I would say, even more, a more biblical perspective. So you might have come to a different conclusion about whether Christians keep the Sabbath, um, whether Christians need to tithe and give 10%, how God guides you with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what conclusions you come to, but often what happens is those with knowledge can use their knowledge in a very unhelpful, unloving way. Often, a lot of uh, the uni students, you've just been to your conferences, and I don't want to pick on you, but it's really easy because I was there. I've been there before. Often younger people, you go on a great conference like an NYC or an ANCON and you learn lots of really correct knowledge and then you go back to your church and then you become that guy or that girl who criticizes everything. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Not that there's anything wrong with knowledge, but knowledge handled without love is destructive. But the, the gospel, okay, knowing the gospel has actually created this problem in Corinth. But as I said, the gospel is not only the problem, it's actually the solution. Because knowledge is great, but what you know does not define you. Which is very good because, I mean, think about it. If, if, if Christianity was based on knowledge, then there would be all these levels. It would be like, you know, you need to level up by gaining knowledge. And the more PhDs you have, or the more you've been educated in Christian things, then the higher level you go, but someone who's uneducated or less able to be educated, they would just be on the bottom rung. As you know, the church, Jesus, doesn't work like that. It's not hierarchy based on knowledge. Knowledge is great, but that doesn't define us. Knowledge creates levels, but love is the great leveler. It makes everyone the same level. And that's why the gospel is the solution. So look at verse 2. Verse 2. Those who think they know something actually don't yet know as they ought to know. He kind of wants to pull the rug from under your feet. You think you're so smart. But here's the key one. Whoever loves God is known by God. He doesn't say whoever loves God knows God. He turns it around. Whoever loves God, what's important is that you are known by God. Here's a really important twist. He's saying what you know is not as important as who knows you. You got that? What you know is not as important as who knows you. Known by God in the Bible is shorthand for relationship with God. And as you know, the gospel has brought relationship with God by grace. God knows you just as you are, as broken as you are. And He still loves you. And Jesus still died for you. You see, what I know, if that's your standard, then I can be superior or inferior, depending on how much I know. Who knows me is the great leveler. You can't. If what you base your life on isn't what I know, but who knows me, 
And that relationship with God, as I said, is based on grace. And how, how could I possibly think I'm better than you or even that I'm worse than you? Because the gospel creates new lenses. When you look sideways within the church, everyone is a brother or sister. Everyone is equally known and loved by God. And verse 11, really importantly, every brother or sister is someone for whom Christ died. Right? All of us, equally, people for whom Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice. You see, when I'm tempted to steamroll over a younger, less informed, weaker Christian, I'm to see them as being equally loved, equally redeemed, a brother, a sister for whom Jesus bled and died. Sometimes I think, what would happen if Jesus treated me the way I'm tempted to treat other people within the church? I mean, think about it. Jesus, who was infinitely superior to me, he could have crushed me like a bug. But instead, Jesus came, became a man, served me in my weakness, died and sacrificed his life for me. He laid aside all the superiority. He came and washed my feet. Now, even not on this whole food sacrifices issues, is this the way you see each other, friends? If you're a follower of Jesus, is this the lens in which you see one another? Because if it's true, then it means that the most difficult person, the person you find most awkward, most frustrating, most different, or most difficult to love, is someone for whom Jesus died. That's your brother and your sister. That would affect everything, shouldn't it? The gospel is the great leveler. So, let me bring it to point three and let's apply it to us. Most of the Christian life, as I said, is lived in the freedom outside of set rules. It's wonderful, but it can create friction. Yeah, Historically, lots of friction. Sometimes we just, even trying to determine what are the boundary issues and what aren't, creates friction in the history of the church. You know, yes, we know the Bible is the ultimate authority, but what happens when different views on what the Bible teaches can all be reasonably defended by people who love Jesus. Like, for example, should we baptize babies? How should we have church governance? What kind of system or structure? What are good styles of worship? You know, all these things have been debated throughout history and can cause friction. And, and they're there because, again, the gospel, the Bible doesn't tell you, thou shalt only use organs and never drums during worship, you know? It doesn't say. The boundaries are there, but there's a lot of freedom, and that creates a lot of friction. So here are some practical considerations under point three, A, B, and C. Firstly, though, don't overapply. See, some people will use 1 Corinthians 8 and apply it to every single instance where someone might think differently to you and perhaps even get offended by what you do. All right? Some of you, if I wore a T-shirt and shorts to preach, would be offended by that. And on that basis, you might be thinking that's a 1 Corinthians 8 issue. You should never wear a t-shirt and shorts to preach. Now, it may be other good reasons out of love for you that I won't wear a t-shirt and shorts to preach, but it's not 1 Corinthians 8, okay? It's not 1 Corinthians 8. Remember, this is a group 1 leading group 3 astray issue. It'd only be an issue if me wearing shorts and t-shirts means that you wear shorts and t-shirts, emboldened by my wearing of shorts and t-shirts, but for some reason, you wearing shorts and t-shirts is an act defying your conscience, which I can't see happening, 
Okay, that, that's, the, that's a parallel situation. It's not every situation where someone might be offended about something you do. Okay? Important. And also, as I said, 1 Corinthians 8 is not the end of the matter. It's only just the beginning. Paul starts with principles in chapter 8, and then he'll actually come back to make conclusions. So let me cut the long story short. We're actually going to deal with 9 and 10 in the next two weeks. But let me just tell you where he goes with this. Because you'll end up with three principles when it comes to food sacrifice idols. We won't come to it till chapter 10. The first principle he'll say is, whatever you do, you're free to do anything, but keep these three things in mind. One is, make sure you're running away from sin. Okay, flee from idolatries, well, he'll say. Right? Make sure you're running away from sin. And actually, he'll, he'll pretty much say that first type of eating where you're going to a temple in a celebration, in a feast, that's not a good idea. He says that in chapter 10. Because it's not running away from sin. Not only might you lead someone astray, likelihood is you'll be led astray yourself. Because you can't go to these big celebration temple things and not participate. Okay? He'll actually say, don't do it. That's his conclusion on that kind of eating. Because it's not running away from sin. First principle. Second principle, we've seen already, don't cause a brother or sister to stumble. In other words, don't cause them to act against their conscience because they follow you. So he will say on the other two types of eating, private dinners, meat bought at the butchers, being sacrificed to an idol, he'll say, feel free to eat. Feel free to go to a friend's place for a private dinner, even though the food's been sacrificed. But... Don't if you're going to cause that third group of person to fall into sin, okay? Feel free unless it causes a brother or sister to stumble. And then thirdly, this is something we'll actually come back to next week in chapter 9. Do everything you can, right, to help but not hinder your relationship with outsiders, evangelism. Come back to that next week. But I just want you to see how important this is to Paul. Look at the last verse of our chapter. He says, quite revolutionary, look, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. It's not just because I love meat that this is a problem for me. He actually says, literally, I will never eat meat for all eternity. That's what he means there. Right? I will never, by no means, ever touch meat into eternity. It's the same phrase used when it talks about eternal life. And I'd rather never, ever, ever into eternity until Jesus returns, even after he returns, if it causes my brother or sister to sin. Do you see how seriously you take it? And I would just wonder if we love like that. Okay? So three principles. Second thing to keep in mind, work out when you need to do the hard work. See, sometimes you don't need to invent or reinvent the wheel. Churches make a lot of decisions on some of these matters and really shortcut the process for you. For example, infant baptism. Every church has a stance on infant baptism. Church governance. Every church has made a decision about how their church is governed. Worship styles. Male-female roles. Okay, at Southwest Evangelical Church, we've made decisions on these. You can shortcut a lot of your process, can't it? And our church... Um, on one issue, we actually have made a decision um, for our leadership, um, and it's an issue that I think is important enough that we've made a decision, a policy on that, and that has to do with um, couples who aren't married, dating couples, going on holidays alone together. 
Okay, and the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. It says avoid immorality, make sure you're not sleeping together before marriage. But going on holidays together, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Everyone's doing it. Well, in our church, we actually think that's one of those issues where actually, I think of all issues, that's probably a very close to 1 Corinthians 8 issue. Ask me why that is later on. But for our church, we've decided for our leadership, we want them to set the, a really good model. And so we ask our leaders not to go on alone holidays with someone that they're dating um, or someone of the opposite sex um, before they're married. Okay, go on holidays with a group of people is fine, with each other's families is fine, just not the two of you alone. Ask me about it later. Again, we made that decision for our leaders. So if that's something you're considering, is that a stumbling thing? Hey, if you're a leader at Southwest Evangelical Church, work's done for you, okay? Because we made that policy for you. Okay, so some of the hard work is done for you. It's not going to suit everyone. It's not going to suit every conscience. And I want you to not just say this is a line drawn, therefore I can take it or leave it. No, no, no. This is something we're happy to talk about with you, discuss with you, debate with you. Sometimes we'll even change our policies. But if at the end of that, you can't, with good conscience, go along with what your church has decided, even after talking, even after debating and dialoguing with your Bibles open, then you know what? It's okay to move churches. Right? These are not gospel issues I'm talking about, not right-wrong issues. They're issues where churches do need to make a stand. We've done the hard work. If you disagree, ultimately you can't come to an agreement. It's okay to move churches, to find a church where they don't baptize infants because that's where your conscience lies. Okay, right. But here's the thing. The church won't do that on every issue. In fact, on most issues. We have no church policy on yoga or qigong. Some churches do. We have no church policy on what you should do when you go to a Buddhist funeral. Right? Should you go? What are you allowed to do and not to do? And there would be significant differences even among us, even our leadership on what you should do on these matters. So in those cases, you need to do some of the hard work yourself. What does that mean? Firstly, get some advice, especially from church leaders. Right? We might not have made a policy on it, but we'll have some thinking about it. Make an informed decision. Even talk to those who might think differently on it. And then most importantly, make sure that you're not doing what you've decided because that's what you've decided and you're free to do it as if no one else matters. Don't be a group one person. That's what I'm saying. Right? People who don't like it, too bad. It doesn't work like that. Right? Make sure you made an informed decision. Now, even at the end of these decisions, and keep in mind those principles, those three principles, are you running away from sin? Are you going to cause someone else to fall into sin? Are you hindering or helping evangelism? Right? If after all of that you've made a decision and you've done it out of love and you've done it humbly, look, you're not going to make everyone happy. Probably someone will get offended at some point, but you've done it the right way. Okay? That's important. All right, last of all, Remember, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 just touches on one issue, this food sacrifice idols issue, but actually should shape everything we do. And so the first verse and the last verse of this long section really is very important. The first verse, principle number one, at the end of chapter 8, verse 1, it says what? Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Love for others is the first principle. Skip all the way to the last verse of chapter 10 and you'll read this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Right? At the beginning, at the end of this long section, two rules, two principles. Do it out of love for the glory of God. Now, for those like me and James Hoey, we've been um, missing a lot of sleep because it's been the Tour de France. Most of you don't care about a cycling thing, but we do. 
Anyway, just to share a bit of the love. In, our, in, in the tour, in, in cycling, um, and if you don't watch cycling, you wouldn't know this. I didn't know it before I watched cycling. But it actually is a team sport, much more than many team sports. There's eight guys on each team. And here's the thing about um, these kind of tours. Seven guys on the team exist purely for the one guy. They will sacrifice themselves, their own rights, their own ambitions, their own goals for that one person. Only one person might win out of your team. And the other seven are there just to sacrifice for them. And if every team member raced for themselves, the teams will miss out on actually winning and will miss out on glory and everyone loses. All right? And that's the attitude we ought to have. We ought to be all thinking we're the seven. And our team captain is Jesus. And our team captain is a great team captain because he modeled sacrifice, didn't he? And so we got to all lay our rights and ambitions at his feet. We want him to look good, not us. And do you know what glorifies Jesus? What makes him look good? Nothing makes Jesus look better than when we love and sacrifice our own rights for one another. Remember he said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So on this issue, on every issue, glorify Jesus by loving him. Sorry, by loving each other. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us keep the important principles of love, self-sacrifice, and glorifying Christ as forefront in our minds. In this, in any, and in every situation. Amen.